It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to a new edition of the program. Jason Jackson here with you solo this week. Uh, Kirk Morrison, our partner, he is on assignment, but we still have a great show in store for you. A little later on the program, Sports Illustrated writer John Wertheim will join us. A unique story connected to the invasion of Ukraine. He'll stop by and, and talk to us about how two players who used to compete with USSR on their jersey now trying to help young Ukrainian players uh, escape the horrors of war, try to continue their uh, athletic experiences, uh, and bottom line, trying to save their lives. Uh, In our next segment, we'll spend time uh, talking about season two of Black Diamonds, the podcast partnership between the Black Negro League, I should say Negro League Museum, Baseball Museum, uh, and uh, SiriusXM, discussing uh, the history and awareness surrounding the Negro Leagues. Bob Kendrick is the president of the museum. He is the host of the show. Uh, he's been with us before here on Forward Progress. Delighted to talk to him coming up in just a little bit. But first, we want to get you up to date on a story that emerged this week as NASCAR announced uh, Tuesday uh, that Denny Hamlin will be required to complete a sensitivity training course that must begin by the end of the week. Uh, the Cup Series driver made a social media post early in the week using an anti-Asian meme from the television show Family Guy toward Kyle Larson regarding his final lap move in uh, the race on Sunday at Talladega. Uh, Here's the quote from Hamlet. I I took down a post I made earlier today after reading some of the comments. It was a poor choice of memes, and I saw how it was offensive. It came across totally wrong. I apologize, end quote. Larson, who is half Japanese and the reigning Cup Series champion, uh, made a move in his final turn that helped him finish fourth overall in the race. However, his move was an aggressive one uh, that caused uh, Kurt Busch to crash. And so uh, Hamlin's tweet included a video of an Asian driver making a comment about using turn signals across multiple lanes of traffic, implying the racist stereotype about Asian drivers. Uh, Larson's name was placed over the driver in the clip. The video was then stitched with the ending of Sunday's race. So before we get into uh, how this was all adjudicated and and broken down even further, let's address the just come on aspect of this. Like, I'm sure Denny thought he was being cute. And he, he may even have a relationship with Larson that allows for uh, banter that that is less than above board because of their personal relationship. I don't know. I'm, I'm given the benefit of the doubt that would even allow uh, someone at this stage in this climate, even in that sport to be so thoughtless. And at, listen, I can already hear the thousands of eye rolls from those people that think we're being too sensitive in this age. 
and that we can't even have fun with each other. Here's the consideration that I think gets lost at least 90% of the time when folks want to justify being thoughtless is that when, when we were in an era where there was less pushback for, uh, for this type of ribbing or poking or, or just giving somebody a hard time, was there a lot of thought about how it made the other person feel or the people who look like them or associate with them or have empathy for their people think and feel about those things? So many times there was always this demure response, this, this kind of come along or go along chuckle that went with these types of attempts at humor that, that, was, that, that was not acceptance. That was being in a position in which you felt like if you pushed back or said anything that you would get so much strife hit back upon you that you just let things go along. And even if someone is cool with you having that type of relationship where you can make fun of one another's heritage in a way that probably has zero taste in mixed company, that doesn't mean that it's okay with everybody else that's going to take it in. I mean, Hamlin has got to know, has to know at this stage, that he is standing as one of the greats in his sport, has I don't know how many hundreds of thousands to millions of followers. I, I don't follow Denny Hamlin myself, but I would imagine uh, just considering that the man had uh, uh, 2.2 thousand, um, yeah, 2,200 replies uh, just to his post coming down, uh, nearly 5,000 likes to uh, his apology and, and note that he was taking it down. Um, that there are enough people to pay attention that you want to have a much more broad-based approach uh, and understanding of who's taking in your message. And listen, being uh, a, a recognizable figure, being great at your sport in our sports climate, the, the millions and billions of dollars that go into this doesn't allow you the same space as somebody who's hanging out in an office and has interpersonal relationships uh, that allow them at least the comfort to be ignorant and then get called on that or not by those people that they have uh, in their tiny little circle. You are on a national slash international platform. And then the actual joke being made, implying these racist stereotypes, it's just lazy. Like the, the next layer, right, is ignorant, but like the lazy attempt at trying to be funny just and if you're not trying to be funny then the hell with you because you're, you're just absolutely just below bar as it pertains to association now according uh to the associated press the clip uh had been extracted from the tv series episode and it's all available on streaming platforms and and that's not to take family guy off of the uh Hook, but there's an implied comedy that I guess creates some cushion there. Uh, and as we are in this very um, heightened area of the pushback against comedians and the fear and concern in that space, that's a whole nother conversation uh, that was heightened, obviously, uh, with the incident at the Oscars, is that how far can a joke go uh, before you can stand your ground? Um, and I don't know about being physical with somebody, Will Smith, but uh, uh, but but 
we're seeing it time and time again that those who are in the comedy industry are now trying to find out, like, are we at a place where nothing, where there's no line, right? Comedians are constantly pushing the line uh, of what's appropriate and what's not uh, to the idea that if you're telling jokes, isn't everything wide open, we're all just having fun, which blurs this line with Hamlin and Larson uh, in in some ways. Uh, I'm not sure exactly uh, where that particular line of discussion and trying to decide uh, where the right place is for that is. But I know that in these sports where you have partners uh, from a corporate standpoint, partners from a fan standpoint, um, that you're best served by being as inclusive, as diverse as possible, that you have to appreciate NASCAR looking at this and say, this is not what we want in the forefront of our business. We already have a tough reputation in the sense of the sports origins and it coming from the South and coming from spaces where, of course, you're, you're connected to the long history of Jim Crow in the South and this sport. And now the sport that has grown from sea to shining sea, uh, where you have great drivers coming from the Midwest, coming from California, and of course, still coming from uh, the place of its origin, uh, that you just, this isn't what you want. And, and that at the first level, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll as the organization noted, we're going to speak with Hamlin. Uh, and of course, another layer that we'll get to in a second is Toyota, who Hamlin's a part of um, and affiliated with as a team owner. But just NASCAR itself noting, listen, we're, we're, number one, we're not going to take forever to, to run through this. Number two, uh, we're going to at least help you understand why this is a sensitive space and you want to be in a better place with this. Uh, but at the, the very least, we're going to get you some training and help you understand. And by the way, it's happening right now. Listen, it's something that's eventually going to happen. Uh, it's been mandated that it at least must get underway uh, before the end of the week. Let's get into the reality and, and the uh, financial aspect in all of this is that Hamlin is a driver with Toyota uh, while also being affiliated as a team owner. Uh, representatives from Toyota issued a statement in support of NASCAR's decision uh, to at least get Hamlin. And it can be seen as a punishment. I've seen it as an enhancement of at least getting Hamlin some training. They say, quote, we have spoken with Denny Hamlin regarding his tweet from yesterday. Toyota supports NASCAR's decision to mandate sensitivity training for Denny, and we will all move forward together. Now, per NASCAR's rulebook, Members are not allowed to, quote, make or cause to be made a public statement and or communication that criticizes, ridicules, or otherwise disparages other persons based upon a person's race, color, creed, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, uh, marital status, religion, age, or handicap condition. NASCAR has taken a stand to clean that slate and make it clear and obviously Hamlin missed the mark uh, in trying to get that squared away and all you can consider is that he is going to take the time take the training seriously and advance in the right direction from there if Larson ends up uh, uh, wanting to support that I'm sure that that could be available we'll keep an eye on that aspect of the story 
Uh, we'll take a quick break as we continue here on Forward Progress. We will celebrate the second season of Black Diamonds, the podcast on Sirius XM in partnership with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum uh, and how they will move into their second season and their focus with the museum president and the show's host, Bob Kendrick, who joins us next on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. As many of you know, Sirius XM and the Negro League Baseball Museum will present a wonderful second year of the exclusive podcast series, Black Diamonds. It's hosted by museum president and historian Bob Kendrick, and he joins us here on Forward Progress once again. Uh, Bob, first of all, congratulations on uh, having this as an expanded partnership. What, what the does it mean uh, to you personally and to the museum overall to have this partnership with SiriusXM? Oh, it, it's, it's tremendously important because what SiriusXM has done is provided a platform for this museum that has really helped gain tremendous recognition for the work that we're doing here. And, and I'm thrilled that so many folks have fallen in love with the Negro Leagues through this platform that's serious, this national, international platform that yeah. Sirius has provided me and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Talk to me about the reach. You, you note the international aspect of it. Uh, it. It's fun doing these shows, and particularly when they live as podcasts and folks can get to them uh, whenever they want. Sometimes, you know, it, it's it's five hours later. Sometimes it's five <laughs> days later. Uh, but but the, the, talk to me about the the information you're receiving back from folks that are tuning in and from where. Yeah, no, we're, we're seeing these hits come from literally all over the globe. And, mm -hmm. and perhaps some of them are military folks based and they're enjoying listening to these podcasts. But then there's an international audience, you know, themselves that are seemingly enjoying these stories of the Negro Leagues. But, you know, I find it interesting, Jason, because I talk about the fact a lot that the Negro Leagues really help make baseball the global game that it is today. You know, because when they were barnstorming, they would take baseball into Canada. We were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. Touring team of Negro Leaguers who would go to Japan in 1927, mm -hmm. years before Babe Ruth and his All-Stars would go over to Japan, yet Ruth and his All-Stars were always the ones recognized as having introduced, quote-unquote, professional baseball to the Japanese. But it was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who were there well before Ruth and his All-Stars. And so our game today, you look at a major league roster on any given day, it is filled with various ethnicities. It's a global game. Right. And really at the heart of it are the Negro Leagues. They help make it the global game that it is today. They just never got credited for it. But it also reminds us that the Negro Leagues didn't care, man, what color you were. All they cared was, can you play? <laughs> and if you can play, you can play. It was just as simple as that. And so to see this kind of response in an international capacity, it, it just fills me with great joy. And again, something that we take immense pride in. Bob Kendrick's with us. He is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, also the host of Black Diamonds in the second year. Yeah. Where are you taking the show? What, what do you want to expand in this space? We're taking a deep dive look at integration. There'll be some other 
topics that we'll examine and some great legendary Negro League stars that we'll continue to have dialogue about. Mm -hmm. Many of them people have not heard of, but you should know, particularly those who are baseball fans. But the premise of this year's series is based on a deep look at integration. With this marking the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier, I, we thought it was really important that people understand that integration didn't occur in a vacuum, that that was a process that led us to that monumental day when, as we like to say, Jackie Robinson stepped on the moon. He walked on the moon, becoming that chosen one to break Major League Baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. Mm -hmm. and, and so we go behind the scenes and look at what transpired and how we got there and the ramifications of what integration meant, both socially, but also how it devastated the African-American community economically. And, and, and it makes, I think, Jason Ford, just fascinating storytelling and, and hopefully a little mystery and intrigue that is associated with it. Uh, I tell people, I think you could do a scripted TV series just from what took place as we were looking at getting toward integration because you don't know who to believe. I mean, yeah. everybody was saying different kinds of things and, and, and the position, Jason, that the Black owners were in. Because mm -hmm. you got to remember now, this is their business. This is their livelihood. Yet there was this expectation as Black writers, the Black press was pushing for integration that the Black owners we're going to fall in line with them. And because now if you don't, what is the African-American community going to say? Why are you holding us back? Mm. Why are you holding us back? And, and they knew that they were going to lose their primary business. And yet they had to stand in accord so that they don't be perceived to be the ones that are, I guess, quote unquote, stopping progress. But therein lies the question, right. who defines progress? <laughs> it's amazing. As you were starting down that path, Bob, I was starting to think about uh, the double-edged sword of that. Yes. Watching yes. the greatest stars from the Negro Leagues make their way to Major League Baseball and how that would be seen as progress. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is an almighty dollar aspect to that. <laughs> who's telling the story, right? And, Absolutely. And, and who's experiencing the story. What was the most, what's the documented feeling of how the players felt as the, the biggest names in the game were making their way from uh, the Negro Leagues, which was the only home to Major League Baseball once those doors were open in 1947? Well, I, I think there was a sense of loss, anticipated loss, mm. because that older Negro Leagues player was in a quiet that older Negro League player had nowhere to turn. Mm -hmm. and, and so the Negro Leagues didn't want them because they couldn't sell them to the Major Leagues. The Major Leagues didn't want them because they were too old. So the Negro League owners understanding that the handwriting was on the wall. It wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when the Negro Leagues were going to fold. So what do you do? You start to try and groom as much of this talent, young talent, as fast as you can so that you can sell them to the Major Leagues so that you can at least get something out of this before the business of black baseball was going to die. But that older Negro Leagues player, no one wanted. So now they were forced to either go back to Canada 
or to Latin America to try to resume their careers if that was going to be possible. And, and so that was part of the detriment of this. And to some of those major league owners, they understood that. And even when you hear them talk about why we shouldn't integrate the game, and you would hear people say stuff like that, that it was going to put the Negro Leagues out of business. So I think I think most people understood that that was a natural byproduct of what was going to occur when those doors opened. And I don't know, however, if people really understood how impactful this was going to be on Black economy. And I'm not even sure if the Black writers who were really pushing this agenda fully understood how devastating this was going to be for Black businesses because Negro Leagues baseball had essentially been a catalyst for economic development in so many African-American communities. It was a spark that drove so many of those businesses. And then we lost the Negro Leagues and we lost that catalyst. And so, so many of those Black businesses perished because Jackie's integration of baseball essentially spawned integration in a much larger capacity. So now these smaller Black-owned businesses can no longer compete, and they die. And with it, the death of so many urban communities in this country. We operate in one of them, 18th and Vine, historic 18th and Vine. And Jason, it's so interesting that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, this little fledgling museum, comes along in 1990 to not only preserve this history, but to try to resurrect what had once been a very proud, prominent African-American community. And here we are now, three decades later, having basically done exactly what the Negro Leagues had done for so many urban communities. This museum has done that. But this community, people are living, working, and playing at 18th and Vine again after it had literally been abandoned by the city. The city of Kansas City had turned its back on 18th and Vine. It had died. Out over the last couple of years, we're talking to Bob Kendrick, the uh, president of the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, also the host of Black Diamonds, a wonderful partnership between uh, the museum and Sirius XM in its second year. But when we think about what you just shared on top of uh, the deep dive you all are making into integration, uh, let us not forget the fan that was involved. As you may, you're making me think about that as you talk about the community, the, the fan who could go to a Negro Leagues baseball game and probably in the majority of cases buy a ticket to sit wherever he or she pleased. And now as their favorite player was moving uh, to Major League Baseball, the joy of yes. seeing that player on a great platform is one thing. Uh, having access like you once did was not their reality. Yeah, no, and, and you, you're absolutely right because particularly early on, those, those sections were still segregated. Mm -hmm. You had segregated seating for Black folks. Right. And here at the museum, we use chicken wire. And, and chicken wire is symbolic of segregation because during that era, if we were allowed in to watch a major league game, that is how we were separated. So black fans would sit either down the left or right field lines, we would be separated from white fans who sat in the rest of the ballpark. So you had these segregated sections. And so yes, there was this genuine excitement about our black baseball heroes now getting an opportunity to prove that they could play this game as well as anyone. 
So, I mean, throngs of fans were going to see Jackie. And they were filling up those colored-only sections. And, and eventually, baseball realized that, look, we got all these Black folks outside our ballpark, and we don't have a ticket to sell them because we have these isolated sections of the ballpark. And they got smart enough to realize we're going to have to open up this stadium. But you're right. Initially, whereas you could buy a ticket, go to a Negro Leagues game, and sit anywhere that you could afford to sit, you couldn't do that early on at those major league games. And, and then the Black fan was also in a quandary because now my natural curiosity was to see how those great Black stars were going to fare. But again, when we start talking about the economics of it all, I can't necessarily afford to go see two forms mm-hmm. of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Now I got to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the late, great Monty Irvin, who was a star for the Newark Eagles, talked about. Because the teams that were based east, the Negro League teams that were east, that were close to that Brooklyn area, the minute that Jackie takes the field with the Brooklyn Dodgers, it's a wrap. That Black fan base left the Negro Leagues and went over to go see Jackie. And then they went to go see Larry Doby. And then eventually Roy Campanella and Satchel Paige. And they left the Negro Leagues. Their attendance dropped markedly. And the Midwestern-based teams were able to hold on out here in Kansas City, still able to draw because we really weren't that close. St. Louis and Chicago were going to be the closest cities that Major League teams were anchored in. So the Midwestern teams were able to kind of hang on, but the teams out East almost died instantly. Bob, you have the responsibility of administrating this fantastic museum, but at the core, you, you are clearly a historian and, and enjoy <laughs> uh, the walk back. We get a lot of clap back on this show. Um, folks like to jump in our jump, jump in our comments and tell us how we're supposed to to deal with the cross section of race and sports. And part of it is is being real about the look back, uh, making yeah. sure that you fully understand the history, so that the advancement uh, is draped with uh, avoiding or at least recognizing where the minds are and not stepping on those again as you try to advance past uh, inequality and injustice. Uh, how much of that do you have to struggle with when you're presenting ideas of yesterday and how everything has been shaped by those events leading up to now? Surprisingly, Jason, not a lot. I'm glad not to hear that. Yeah. yeah, because again, maybe it's because it's, it's coming from a museum perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. Our story is built around race and sports. That's the premise of it. And it, it's built on the premise of the ugliness of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history, one of its most shameful chapters in this country's history. But as we cast the story of the Negro Leagues, it is really about what emerged out of segregation. This wonderful story of triumph and conquest. And man, it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you in the major league? Okay, I'll create my own league. And, and I think for, the, for, the, for our visitors, they get it. That is the American way. Mm. And that's why I tell people all the time, this story embodies the American spirit, unlike any story in the annals of American history, man. It is everything that we as Americans pride ourselves in being because it's about pride and passion and perseverance, determination and courage. You you don't think I'm good enough? I'll show you. Yeah. And then I'll put something together that many people thought was better 
than the league that wouldn't let me play. And, and we had we used to run a film here, and it was it was uh, narrated by former CNN anchorman Bernard Shaw. And Jason, in the film, he said something really poignant. He says, "You might say that the Negro leagues were so good that they put themselves." out of business. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you have a superior product, that could happen, right? Hey, before I let you run, I know you got to get going, but uh, just over the last couple of years, uh, with far more awareness and, and a heightened connection, yeah. uh, how has the relationship with Major League Baseball and the museum been enhanced? It, it's been tremendous. Uh, and I think that partnership is only going to grow. Obviously, what we saw in December of 2020 when Major League Baseball recognized the Negro Leagues for what we already knew it to be, a major league, that was monumental. It really was. Mm -hmm. Because it then opened up the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum even more mainstreamly to baseball fans. This long overdue acknowledgement and and recognition. And uh, we want to be part of the solution of addressing the issues of the lack of African-American kids playing our game. The history makes a big difference. When you can walk into a place like the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and you walk in and you are completely immersed and you see people who look just like you who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. But man, not only did they play the game, they owned teams and they were managers. And they were coaches and they were traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfilled every role that you could fulfill in the business of this game. And we don't want that to be lost on our young folks as well. So they gain an identity. They see themselves in this role. And I think our sport is one of the most aspirational sports of them all. You need to see yourself. And here they get that. Bob, it's always a pleasure to visit, man. Make sure you come back and hang out with us. It's Black Diamond's fantastic podcast that showcases the history of the Negro Leagues. And uh, just head to the SiriusXM app and search Black Diamonds and enjoy the listen. Uh, It's the second year and the the episodes are already rolling out. Uh, Bob, we thank you for the time. Man, I guess I must have said some stuff last year that made some sense, so they brought me back again. <laughs> no, but we thank, we thank you. We thank all of our family over at Sirius for what you're doing to help push and shine light on this piece of history and, and this great museum that's the caretaker of this history. Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the host of Black Diamonds. We'll take a quick break. When we come back here on Forward Progress, we'll talk about two former NBA players who once played for the Soviet Union. Now they're trying to save kids from Russian attack. We'll dive inside that with uh, the article's author. This is Forward Progress. I'm Jason Jackson. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Thanks for rolling with us here on Forward Progress. I want to spend some time with John Wertheim. who wrote an article that caught our attention because it's right here in our current events. Uh, John, welcome to Forward Progress. Uh, usually we're, we're talking about the cross-section of race and sports, and, and this is really a unique extension of how sports can touch every single thing in this globe and uh, including the current strife that's happening 
with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Talk to us about your, your latest offering and, and how uh, two players who once had the USSR across their chests uh, now are standing up and speaking out against Russia and the things that they're doing in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I just I sort of stumbled on the story, but I was I was in Vilnius, Lithuania, a few weeks ago, and uh, and a mutual friend of Sarutis Marcellonis, I'm sure you remember from, from the Warriors, and just yes. very offhandedly, he told me this story that Alexander Volkov, who had played for the Atlanta Hawks, so you go to his Wikipedia and it says first Russian in the NBA, but uh, he's from what is now Ukraine, and Marcellonis also is from Lithuania at the time, 1988. They played in the Olympics and Seoul beat the U.S. team. They joked that that gave rise to the dream team. No more of this college players only. <laughs> um, by 1992, though, we had had the Soviet breakup. So Barcelona right. was playing for Lithuania. Volkov was playing uh, for Ukraine. And what, what ended up happening was that these two countries broke off. And Volkov was running a youth basketball academy in Ukraine. Russia invades on February 24th. What does he do? He's got all these kids. He's got all these, you know, these teenagers. They want to play college ball. They want to make it to the NBA. He calls his buddy, Marcellonis, in Lithuania and says, hey, listen, can you help me out here? And Sarutis Marcellonis took a number of these young players uh, that were with his old teammates' academy. These kids, I mean, these journeys are just crazy. I mean, it's a, it's a couple hundred miles. But these kids, they had to go through Warsaw. It took days. There were lines at the border. And this ended up sort of becoming a bigger outreach. And you remember our Arvidas Sabonis, who's also in Lithuania, he ended up taking a couple of these kids. And what you basically had was this sort of basketball matchmaking. There's a, a crisis, there's a humanitarian crisis, and these two old teammates who, as you said it, I mean, one of the most fascinating things is that these two guys were teammates for the Soviet Union. And now in great opposition of Russia, they are sort of working to get these kids to safety so they can continue their basketball. That's the toughest part about this, John, is that we, in this era, we get to get all this information sent right to our phones or we're watching news each night. We're taking in what doesn't feel tangible every day, but we're also getting these images in. And as we know, the, the, the I, I don't even know if it's an American attention span. It's probably a global attention span that is so short at this point that to get down and into these stories, I'm so glad you found it and shared it with, with us via Sports Illustrated of just the natural progression of life. Kids trying to see their dreams come true, obviously being deterred by, by this global strife. I, I'm so happy you mentioned that because I think that's one thing that's really striking. I've been spending a lot of time in Europe and uh, sort of seeing this pretty, pretty close. And this contrast between this sort of old time war with, with tanks and ruins and explosions and empire and territory and who's going to you know, retain control. And then everyone's got their phone out. So you're sort of getting this, uh, you know, you're, you're getting Facebook live, of, you know, explosions and blasts and what you had with these kids. On the one hand, their homeland is being turned into ruins. There are a lot of times the fathers, they left with their mothers. A lot of times the fathers are in this volunteer army. And yet they're leaving this war-torn country and they're watching the NBA playoffs on their phone. I mean, I was talking to one kid and, you know, he loves Tyler Harrow. Did you see the, you know, did you see uh, the Morant dunk? In some ways, these are the most normal teenagers in the world. You're right. They're, they're on their phone. Their attention spans might be a little smaller than yours and mine, but they're, 
they're following the NBA playoffs. Did you hear what Barkley said about the Timberwolves celebrating? And at the same time, their homeland is being completely wrecked by, uh, by, by tanks and explosions. It's really a, a jarring contrast. That, that's uh, astonishing at the highest level. We're talking with Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim, who, who's walking us through uh, a unique story in connection to uh, the Ukraine invasion. It, where are these kids ending up? Once they're identified and 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 uh, and at least replaced, where 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 do they find themselves? And, and are they all connected to their families still? Yeah, I mean, again, a lot a lot of times the, the dads have stayed to serve and to defend the homeland. A lot of them have mm-hmm. left with their moms. Some of them haven't. They're ending up in various basketball academies, and at least the, the kids I talk to in Lithuania. They're in school. They're learning English. They have tutors. They're resuming their basketball career. I mean, one, one of the kids I spoke to said, listen, this is one of the few. There is so much instability in my life right now. One of the few places where I have some normal is when I'm playing basketball. So I think it's really important. Um, you know, I, I think for their mentality, psychologically, it's really important that they're still playing. But a lot of them are tied to these basketball academies throughout Europe. And what I also learned during the story, this is happening all over the place with musicians with ballet dancers with with kids with other talents it's just get out of the country we'll take care of you we'll try to let you resume your normal life but a lot of times it's facetiming with the parents certainly facetiming with dad because um men of a certain age are are not leaving this i mean alexander volkov who uh was was the nba player who had this academy he's in to Tokamo and was sort of patrolling, you know, patrolling the old neighborhood. He sent me some photos of his old apartment building that's basically been bombed out. So, um, you know, I mean, you, you get that these are just kids and you also realize how many of these kids are now, you know, J- January 1st, they're going to school and they're, they're sort of normal teenage kids. And right now they're refugees and seeking asylum and staying on couches and Staying in bunk beds, trying to uh, just sort of not not sure when they're going to go home. One, one thing that Alexander Volkov said that was interesting to me was he wanted to be sure that that FIBA, that the International Basketball Association, was going to still let these kids play for Ukraine no matter what happened. So some have gone to Italy, and some have gone to Turkey, and some have gone to Lithuania. But he wanted to be sure that if and when this country is whole again, these kids can resume playing as, as Ukrainian athletes, which is what they were, you know, on Valentine's Day. I mean, this has all happened so fast. Um, it's it's really, you know, you, you get a sense of not just the war, but what an absolute humanitarian crisis this is. John Wertheim with us here on Forward Progress. Are these athletes connected as to what is at play with this particular war? I I, I I don't want, I don't ask that lightly only because teenagers who have dreams uh, athletically oftentimes are myopic. They, they're locked into their singular sport. That doesn't mean they can't grasp what's happening around them around the world. But what, what is your view of, of, of how they're taking this all in and, and the stance that obviously their home nation has to take to, to defend itself? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that the short answer is yes. They're they're very aware, and part of this is just the, the family connection and the fact that they're facetiming dad, and dad's wearing camo, or dad's in the basement somewhere. The other thing too is that you travel around Europe and you get to the train station, and the first thing you see when you get off your train are these these groups of aid workers that are carrying Ukrainian flags, 
and they're offering housing and they're offering, hey, if you're a short order chef, we have a job for you. And if you have childcare needs, we can take care of you. And you look at the support of Ukraine. I mean, every capital building in Western Europe has a Ukrainian flag flying. And I think when these kids left Ukraine and realized, hey, look, they're, they're flying our flag. They're churches with our flag. They're apartment buildings that are in blue and yellow. When they've left Ukraine and seen the support, I think, A, it's, it's been gratifying, obviously, but I think it's also kind of cemented to them how big a deal this is all around the world. That, uh, you know, when, when the Eiffel Tower has Ukrainian flag colors, you realize how important this, this conflict is. The refugee aspect of this can be challenging, obviously, for the folks that are trying to get to a place and then also the nations trying to bring folks in, uh, even when uh, the populace of these many nations may fully agree and support Ukraine standing firm and, uh, and holding back Russia on their sovereign land. It's still a reality uh, of ha- having everyone in their space. I- anything that you've noticed in your reporting about any pushback or does it feel like a continual yes, come to our space and We'll take care. It really varies by country is what, what you're seeing. And I mean, the, the estimates were, you know, multiple millions of people have left the country. A lot of them are, are under 18. A lot of them are kids. Some countries are basically just get, get here. We'll deal with the numbers and the funding later. Let's just sort of triage this. Um, other countries, the, the UK most notably, has been sort of much less generous opening up its borders. Uh, UK, obviously not part of the European Union anymore. Um, I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, it's, it's hard to get asylum in the United States. I mean, a lot of, I, I've heard stories of, of Ukrainian teams going to Mexico and trying to walk across the border in San Diego and trying to basically make an asylum claim. It really varies. Like I'm right now, if you can see behind me, the orange, I'm actually in, in Amsterdam right now. And it's a very generous policy here. It's, you know, we've, understand this is an absolutely dire situation and we'll you know if you if you want to come here essentially we'll take you and we'll, we'll figure out the details later it's, it's not like that everywhere i think about the timing and obviously that ends up being secondary in thought but it, there is a reality for some of these young athletes uh, that maybe you've had a chance to be in contact with or their families who are on the precipice of making that move that they're a a, a well-identified junior player and they're making their way to that next level of professional play. I assume some of that has been, has it been halted, I guess is the right way to ask you the question uh, because, because of the warfare. The kids that, um, that Alexander Volkov, the, the former Atlanta Hawk, the former NBA player who's running this basketball Academy in, in, uh, in Kiev and Ukraine, the, the kids that he sent out first were born in 2006. So you, you do the, do the math faster than I do. But, you know, the 15 seniors, these are high school sophomores. Imagine right. if you have dreams of playing Division One, right. and suddenly get, there's a, your country is war-torn and your season is canceled. So it's been really important to get these kids not just out of the country but back to playing basketball. Some of this, again, is, is psychological. It's, it's giving these kids some sort of sense of normal. It's a way to escape all the, all the chaos at home, but also – yeah, for some of these kids that want a D1 scholarship, I mean, you know, Arvidas Sabonis, I mean, if you look at Sabonis' son, uh, plays for Gonzaga. If he, sophomore year had suddenly been interrupted, I assume that would have made his recruitment a lot a lot trickier. So um, part of this was about getting these kids out. Part of them was making sure that they didn't lose this season. And fortunately, most of the kids I spoke to, they're, they're playing basketball. They, they found teams, they found leagues to play in, and it doesn't seem to have uh, really interrupted them. 
John, oftentimes we find ourselves talking about the financing of things, even in terrible modes of this. Where is the actual hard money coming from to get folks from one place to another? It cannot be easy. Um, no, you're, you're right. And again, I think it's kind of this triage of we'll sort out the bills later. I mean, fortunately, you know, yeah. Alexander Volkov played in the NBA. Sharunas Marcellinus played in the NBA. Um, nobody's living large here. I mean, mm-hmm. Sharunas Marcellonis was like, look, I mean, let's, um, I'm happy to do this, but no one's, you know, we've got, I, I care if you know, I was six, six kids in, in bunk beds in one room. Um, right. I think get, getting out has been a real issue for people. Um, there was basically a miles and miles traffic jam at the border that's eased, but a lot of these kids are going through Berlin. They're going through Warsaw. Sometimes the basketball Academy would send a representative to meet these kids, but you really have a sense of this is just a crisis and it's, let's just top line item. We got to get these kids out and we'll sort right. of sort out the, sort out the bills later. I mean, obviously the kids that left with their parents are, are in different position than, the kids that were put on the bus, but, but both, both exist. So, um, you're, I mean, I think you're right that, uh, you're relying on the kindness of strangers. There, there is a lot of, of aid, both charitable contributions, but also governments that have set aside money for, for housing and for, for, for food and relocation. But, um, I mean, yeah, at some point, depending on how long this conflict goes, I mean, it's, it's February 24th. So, you know, we're, we've passed the, Two month mark already. Uh, bills are going to start mounting, and that leads me to my last question. For I really appreciate your time and being generous with it and your thoughts, and thank you for writing this article. Uh, what, what's the next layer for this? Uh, wars do not have timelines or deadlines, and and then the next uh, one thing that pops in my mind is you start to put your roots down in, in a new place that may end up being the permanent place. Uh, as the discussion or the reality of any long-term thinking started to emerge. I've spoken to a number of Ukrainians about this, and one of their concerns is this, their country has really been wrecked, and it's going to take years and years and years and years to build back some of these institutions. Um, Some of this is obviously about lost lives, but some of this is just practical. It's, It's roads and facilities and you're a teenager, you're, you're behind me in, in Amsterdam and it's a city of canals and you find like you're warmly received. There's a real fear that this culture at, at some level is going to become a race just because people are going to sort of weigh the, weigh the pros and cons and who knows if, if the war ended tomorrow, who knows if they would return. John, we really appreciate the time and thank you for sharing your reporting with us. We, we thought it was important to, to shine a light on the reality of what these athletes are going through and the, and, and the assistance that they're receiving from these former NBA players. John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated with us here on Forward Progress. We thank him so much for stopping by. It was great to visit with Bob Kendrick from uh, Black Diamonds, the podcast uh, in partnership between Sirius XM and the uh, National uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Uh, we will get Kirk Back on the program next week, we make sure that uh, NFL Network Radio doesn't steal them next time. For our producer, Pernell Brown, I'm Jason Jackson. We'll catch you next time on Forward Progress.